Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for reading that. So the passage that we read before in 1 Thessalonians talks about Paul pointing out his work, his toil, as he says, to uh, bring the gospel to the church in Thessalonica. And as I begin to read that, I begin to think of what's the best way to illustrate what's happening here and what Paul's heart was after. Um, Because you see, he says um, in the very beginning, he says, I've dealt with you the same way that a father deals with his children. And the description that he gives there is encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And that phrase, living lives worthy of God, is it wasn't meant to be like a, a legalism, right? Which we're going to get to here in a second. Um, it wasn't meant to just be grace, like do whatever you want. Because he says, as a father cares for his children, um, I've basically, I've, I've invested in you. I've encouraged you. I've poured into your lives because I want to see you develop and grow and find this new freedom. And those of you that are parents, we understand, like, when you tell your kids to do certain things, or maybe you've seen this growing up, that your parents will desire certain things of you or require things of you that you don't want to do at times. And what we see there was a, a, an interaction where that church grew and developed because of that kind of heart, that fatherly love that Paul had of developing, encouraging, and equipping them. And as we're going to think about it, there's like two responses that typically happen. Either people are like, I want nothing to do with you, and the fist goes up, or the other side is get very legalistic and get very rules-driven and be like, I'm going to do everything I can to please the Father. All right, so I've kind of given away the entire story right there, right? The prodigal son, there's two, son, there's two sons in that story. There's two sides of the coin that begin to happen as we develop either as a church, as Christians, that either we do one thing or the other, and we'll, that's what we're going to expand on right now, okay? So the first one, let's look at the prodigal son. Um, the very first thing is that we see Jesus tell a story, and the first thing we got to see is that Jesus' audience is tax collectors, sinners that are gathering in the, around him, and Pharisees. So it's people that are either on one end of the spectrum that are like, I want nothing to do with this whole religious thing, or they're like, we got it figured out. We know how to encounter God. We know how to handle God. We have them all perfectly dialed in in synagogue and the, the building and the church, and it's all the way it's supposed to be. Um, so that's his audience. But the first thing he says, a man had two sons. You still have the passage in front of you. Um, it goes on and says, he squandered his wealth with wild living. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. Basically wanted nothing to do with the father, right? And so my question is, how do you think the prodigal son viewed home before leaving? Okay, so wrestle with that. How do you think the prodigal son viewed home? It doesn't say any of that, but we can probably kind of maybe extrapolate or just kind of even use our own experiences and those kind of things to say, why would he do such a thing, right? So someone next to you, 
answer this question just briefly. We'll just take a few few seconds. Um, how do you think, or how do you think the prodigal son viewed his home before leaving? Go for it. So now you had a, a moment to think about it and got some ideas from some people around you. What do you think the prodigal son, the first son's response was? How do you think he viewed his home life? Didn't love it. Didn't love it. Oppressive. <laughs> Burdensome. Constrained and controlled, right? So we all kind of have a picture of what this might have been like. Um, maybe a very religious, in their mind, it was a very religious home that was controlling them in a religious way. Would it be fair to say that? Maybe you've seen that in friends' lives or maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Um, And so he basically says, I want nothing to do with this. Give me my inheritance, which in that day, to tell your father, I want my inheritance, was basically to say, I want nothing to do with my family I'm disowning you. It would have been the, like, the rudest thing you could do, all right? And then he goes and just wastes all of that money, just blows it, goes and just lives it out. How do you think the prodigal son viewed home after returning, right? So he went and wasted all this money. We know that there was a few, there's a few moments, right, where he just goes, you know what, even my father's servants have a better life than I have right now. I'm just going to go back. And in his mind, he says, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against um, my father. And he basically says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Like has this moment, right, of recognizing that what he thought was freedom wasn't freedom, was it? So what did, he, what did he recognize in that process? Talk about it for a second, and then we'll throw out the answers together. So any responses? What do you guys think? How do you think he viewed home life after he returned? Because this is act one of two acts in the story, okay? Act one is him returning home. How do you think he viewed home life after returning? What is his posture? What? He appreciated it for a week. <laughs> I know, we don't, we don't know the end of the story there. Humbled. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the father gives him a robe, a ring, throw, like gets, like, tells the servants, go slaughter the fatted calf, 
right? That would have been at that time, that would have been like the annual thing that you do. People didn't eat meat on a regular basis. Um, and so to have meat would have been like the biggest feast, right? So all the servants are invited. Everyone in that area would have been invited to this feast. And so he gets this kind of like welcome home that he knows he does not deserve, right? Unconditional love, right? Any other thoughts on that one? There would have been a gratitude that, that I hope would last longer than a week, right? Hopefully that's a memorable, like, like a catalyst in his life that recognized, man, I, I messed up big time. That didn't fulfill. And my father still comes. It says that he came, comes running down the street. When he saw him a long ways off, runs to him. Right? Yeah. Right. He was coming back because he was hungry. He's going to work as a servant. Yeah. So and here the father's putting on all. I mean, it's got to be torn sense of emotion. Yeah. Because you know, I'm anti everything that's going on, and yet that's the only place I can go to eat. Yep. So I'm coming back saying I'll leave here. Yeah. I made a mess of this, but but it's got to be yep. highlight. Big time. <laughs> so <laughs> humbling. So humbling. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. For sure. 100%. Yeah. It's, it's a journey. And that's what I, I think what you're trying to allude to is that, and even in the idea of like he probably was grateful for a week, right? It's a journey. But he knows where the father stands. Right? He knows where the Father's heart is for him. There's no debate about that. Um, and so this is Act 1. This is the first part. This is the part that everybody, every church message you hear focuses on. But the story doesn't stop there, right? Jesus like just sets it up. This is Act 1. Now we're going into the serious part. And this is where the listeners, the Pharisees specifically would have been angry. They would have been furious. Like this story wasn't meant to be cheerful and happy and like, look, we just, we love the outcast and this is God's heart. People, I think, kind of knew that based on what Jesus had already been preaching, but he takes it to the next level and he goes, okay, act two, let's talk about the second brother. So here's where it gets serious, right? So second brother comes into the story and what we see is a brother who is jealous, right? A brother who sees what's happening. The fatted calf has been killed. And the older brother, it says, became angry. And this is where the story goes. Like, when you're telling a story, this would be kind of the punchline. Well, there's an even finer punchline at the end. But the end of the story is kind of like, see where we're going? Like, this is the first son. Now look what the second son did. Because his first son kind of, he messed up and he had a, a way of going about this and discovering it, but he also learned in that process. And what we see here is an older son where the, the story just takes this abrupt turn and he gets angry and he goes, this son squandered all of his inheritance on prostitutes, it says, 
And he comes home and he gets a fatted calf. And he gets to celebrate. And he talks about how, like, even if I wanted to celebrate, I don't even get a fatted calf. Like, the father wouldn't even, like, and the father responds with, like, if you wanted any of this, you, you've always had it. It's always been available to you. It's all here. And yet now you're complaining about it? And so the response from the older son is what? Where do you think his heart is towards the father right now? Entitled. Entitled. Turn and share with somebody just near you. Some ideas and stayed and was jealous. Oh, the younger one. The younger one is the one that bailed out. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. It's interesting that he got the inheritance. Because usually the older gets the inheritance in that culture. Again, another example of the generosity of the father demonstrating that. So what is the, the posture? What is the heart of the older brother at this point? I heard jealousy, shock, resentment. Yep. Earned it. Yep. Yep. We, I say we as in the church, Christians, are prone to go either one of these directions or another. And that can happen even in a day or a week or a month or a season in life. Um, We can get to where we think we got it figured out we know what God's plan is. We know what's going on. And we know how God should operate on his property and with his resources. This is what God does with his resources. This is what God doesn't do with his resources. Um, and the extravagance destroys the older brother. He's just like, this not, that's not what we do. Like, you wasted it. It's not, it wasn't his decision, right? The father was the one who was providing all of it, had endless amounts of it, um, and yet we're torn between the two. And the younger one goes and basically just blows it all on wild living, right? Just goes crazy and just like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Whatever he thought would be freedom. And then discovers that that's not freedom. And the older brother was there working hard. It says he's even in the field when he discovers that they're having this feast. So he's like, he must have been out there just sweating, working hard, going, I'm out here working and you guys are partying? What's wrong with you, you know? And that posture, it can happen in any of us during the week, right? 
Look how much work I'm doing. Look what I'm doing to lift up my end of the deal. Look how much did I do for the church. Look what, and people will have that conversation with God, right? Where we go, look what I did for you, God. Look how much I tithe or look at how much I give and sacrifice and try and work to reach people. And this is what I get, right? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever said those kind of things. Um, our posture can quickly go to like, look what I'm doing, and yet I don't get. And the Father's response is, no, you've gotten, you've had, you always will have. This is always at your disposal. And, and so it really just, I, this story is so powerful because I think what it spoke to was that audience there that would have been very religious, thought they had it figured out, and now they're challenged with, you don't have it figured out. You're probably not right with the Father. Your, your relationship with the Father could be one or the other. And so Jesus spoke to both sides of the, the audience, right? Those that want nothing to do with God and say, I want freedom. And they're like, well, actually, I need a Father who's loving, who's encouraging, who will, as we read in First Thessalonians, equip and push towards, what did it say? Lives, oh, sorry, um, lives worthy of God. That was Paul's heart, was that we begin to live lives worthy of God, and our worth never comes from how much we do. So when we read that, we go, your initial reading might be, lives worthy of God? Like, do I need to do a bunch to become, like, holy and worthy? No, it's the prodigal son story here is, no, you're already welcome. And the second son, no, you've already been here. You're, this is all yours. And so, yes, it's all a gift, but it's our posture and how we respond. And we can either hold tightly like the older brother or too loosely and say, I want nothing to do with it and just let it all go and just say religion's a waste of my time. This whole like relationship with God and what he's trying to do is just oppress me and like keep me from being free, right? The same way that our kids think that, yeah. We're, just, we're trying to help them. <laughs> Maybe it's too raw for me, like dealing with my daughters right now, but um, it's just like we're, we're trying to help them. We try to do things that encourage them, that equip them, and, and hopefully like teach them disciplines that help them thrive in life, and yet sometimes they just bite the hand that feeds you, and they're just like, no, I don't want to, and you're like, okay, all right. <laughs> Eventually, you'll understand, right? And I think we learn that. It's a journey. It's a long process. And uh, my prayer would be that we would have a humility um, to hear this truth, that maybe we're in one side or the other right now, um, and that we continually, I guess, journey with, reflect on, where am I at? Because every week this is going to happen, right? There's going to be times where we're just going to be like, I want to squander it all, and I'm out of here. I'm done. <laughs> and there's going to be times where we're like, look how hard I work. So my, my encouragement would be to reflect on it. And I'm going to show a quick video that uh, I think I showed this last year. But it has to do with perspective. And I think it really points to this, what we do with Lectio Divina and what we do with Scripture and what God, what Jesus tried to do here in good storytelling, right? Like Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. Like we could sit here and talk about just these few lines for so long and unpack kind of the psychology behind it and all of that. Like, as an older brother, I get this. You know, like, responsible. I'm the older brother. So I, I can totally relate. You're going to get psycho uh, get all 
the psychology on it. It'll go crazy. But um, this video is a poetic way of really looking at this and saying, how do we reflect? How do we begin to have a perspective that recognizes that maybe God's doing something in our lives? Let's check it out. When I was seven years old, I flew in a plane for the first time, and I created a game for myself. Count the number of backyard pools you see. You miss one, you lose. When I turned 21, I flew to Los Angeles, which was a first for me on two accounts. My first time in L.A., and my first time losing the swimming pool game. For the least captive audience ever, you try and tell me what to do in case of a water landing. But what you don't understand is I put the frequent in flyer, collecting rewards which really only amount to flying more. Gazing out my rounded rectangle, I never miss the takeoff. The slow zoom as things bigger than you fade smaller and smaller until they become so distant that I can't even squish them between my fingers anymore. Imagine how a bird must feel the first time it swoops down to land on the ground and thinks, that house is much bigger than it looks. I like it better up there, where you're the first to know the weather. Suspended between time zones and atmospheres, I get acquainted with the clouds, cheating death and gravity for $329 plus tax. From up there, I see where roads begin and end. And I want to cheer on the cars. You're almost there. It's just around the corner. You just can't see it yet. From up there, I see small clusters of light reminding me of brainwave activity scans. And I think a city is perhaps a synapse of God's brain. Lighting up where connections are being made with the Almighty. Which makes sense why most of the earth below is so pitch black. With the seatbelt sign turned on and the man in the aisle seat white-knuckled on the armrest, I remind him that no plane has ever crashed from turbulence. But if we had the choice, don't you think most passengers would give up before it passes? What if on the ground we had no choice but to strap in and wait it out? How many still-fathered children would there be? How many unsigned divorce papers? How many unread suicide notes? How many of us would stick around if we knew that what is turbulent is ultimately harmless? And that, though annoying, the change fee is necessary. Because change never comes free, and I'll gladly pay the price if it will get us where we're going faster. But we fail to recognize that if your name's on the suitcase, it's just going to come around again and again until you grab it. The turnstile of life keeps kicking back what you refuse to pick up. In other words, we all have to claim our baggage before we can move on. From up there, I can see all that. But from down here... I'm lucky if I even take the time to look up and wish I could fly. Important as we think about perspective, and what Jesus did was he elevated their perspective as they listened. I like that line, it's like the the turnstile of the baggage keeps going around until we pick it up. And what my prayer is that 
as we pursue what it looks like to live lives worthy of God, we pick up the baggage, we journey through it, we recognize that there may be parts of my life where I've gotten like the older brother and a Pharisee about it, and I'm claiming to know what God's plan is, Um, or maybe I'm squandering what God's given me and not being responsible with it. I hope that um, our perspective is elevated uh, as a result of what Jesus is doing here and the story that he tells, because the the punchline, verse 32, is we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the key part of that is like he was dead and now he's alive again. I hope that we can move from being dead to being alive. And we may not be totally dead. I know it's obviously wasn't literally dead. But there can be parts of us that are dead to what God wants to do in us. And so let's pick up that baggage. Let's deal with it. Let's begin to see what God can, wants to do and, um, yeah, and just I mean, live freely and lightly because we recognize that God is doing a work in us to transform us, to be loving, to be worthy, as the first passage says, worthy of God because he is like the Father that just says, all of this is yours. Everything you have, I've given to you. I love you deeply. Here's the ring. Here's the robe. Here's the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate because what was dead is now alive. And that's what we get to celebrate. And that's the encouragement that I hope we walk out with, that that is the heart of the Father. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that we have these very poetic, beautiful stories that you've told about what your kingdom looks like to help us begin to see more and more what freedom looks like, what it looks like to live in step with you, Jesus, because uh, ultimately you, wanna, you want us to live freely and lightly. You want us to have this relationship with you that, that is thriving, that is good, that is the way you designed it to be in our families and our relationships with people. Um, with people we work with, with our neighbors, um, with whoever we come in contact with, Lord. May we be reflections of that love as a result of sitting and recognizing what you're doing in our lives in areas that you want to uproot things, in areas where you want to plant things and grow new trees in our lives that begin to bear fruit. So work in us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.